please open your Bibles or your amazing scripture journals. What a great idea. If you're in them, open them at page 16, 17. And I was thrilled to see that my passage goes over two pages, so you've got double the amount to take notes. <laughs> I, only get, I only get the first verse on page 18, but it, the rules are you can use that whole page to take notes. So that'll be really good uh, this morning. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's wonderful to think of how you lift us above the storm. It's true. You quieten our souls. And Father, we don't know what power you'll exercise among us and continue to exercise among us this morning as we look at your son from the pages of your word. But we pray now that you would draw near to us and help us and close us in with you. Make us most conscious of your presence by the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Take glory to yourself, Lord Jesus, and help us and speak to us with that voice that awakens the sleeping and better wakens the dead. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Some of you might recall a popular satirical TV program from the 1960s called That Was The Week That Was. Some of you have never heard of it. Its nickname was TW3 for obvious reasons. Believe it or not, I'm too young to actually remember it being televised. But it came to my mind this week when I thought about the second half of John chapter 1. It might very well be described as that was the week that was. Day 1. Verses 19 to 28. You've already looked at this in detail. The Jews sent a delegation for tea and biscuits with John the Baptist and a few probing questions for him. Day 2, verse 29 to 34, beginning with that remarkable verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a week. The sin taker has come on the scene. Day three, you looked very closely at that last Sunday morning when those who had been schooled by John, prepared by John the Baptist, reveal actually how clear and faithful a teacher and forerunner John the Baptist had been. Verse 35, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by. He said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard them say this, they followed Jesus. It's consistent with everything John had said. I am not the Messiah. So when the Messiah shows up, you stop following me. You start following him. And those disciples of John had heard so much from him about God's ancient, consistent promises to send uh, a Messiah, his own king, into his own world. And so without hesitation, Andrew, and we take the other one to be John, the writer of the gospel, unnamed here, but we think it was John, switched allegiance and began to head and follow Jesus. And now we come this morning to day four, verse 43. Look at it with me. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So you can see already it was a, what a week it was. That was the week that was. It was a week of recruitment by Jesus and response by those whom he had called to be his followers. But John isn't just writing a kind of travel diary. Day one, we went there and said that. Day two, these people came and then we said that and then we went there. It's not just that. He's showing us why men began to follow Jesus. And that's bang on with his whole purpose. Do you remember on the first Sunday of your series, Jonathan took us right to the end of the gospel, to chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the whole of John's gospel is a, is a fantastic discipleship manual showing us why people follow Jesus. Why do we? Somebody asked you this morning, well, why are you a follower of Jesus? Would you be clear in your answer? Well, that's what we're going to think about today. We're going to look at the two men that we're presented with in this section that I've been given. And so very simply, two th headings this morning. Why did Philip follow Jesus? And why did Nathaniel follow Jesus? And there's a couple of subs under each of them. But here we go. Here's the first point. Number one, why did Philip follow Jesus? Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And it happened. Philip began to follow Jesus. Now, why? What happened? Well, John helps to flesh out the picture, helps to give us an understanding of what happened there by presenting two realities to us. And I'll put it like this. First subheading, Philip heard the sovereign call that Jesus made. That's the first reason he followed. He heard the sovereign call that Jesus made. It's very striking, isn't it, when you see the interaction between Jesus and Philip. There's no significant introduction of each to the other. There's no explanation of what following Jesus will mean at this point. Just the call, follow me. But that call we know comes from the one who came from the Father. It's a sovereign call. And Philip instantly knew that Jesus was to be followed. Now, just pause there for a moment because that's not how it happened to you, is it? It's certainly not how it happened to me when I began to follow Jesus. Jesus didn't physically find me one night down the M74 in Blackwood in 1975. He didn't physically find you in the way that he found Philip. He didn't walk into your room in Hamilton or Blantyre or Larkhall or wherever you were at that point when you first came to trust him. He wasn't bodily present with you or with me when I began to follow him, when you began to follow him if you're a Christian. True. You didn't hear his actual voice, not in the way that Philip heard his actual voice. And I raise that because we might, as we go through John's gospel, start to think to ourselves, well, there might be different levels of directness in terms of how people become followers of Jesus. And we might even begin to have a slight envy towards people like Philip who actually physically saw the Lord Jesus and actually physically heard his voice on their eardrums. And we might say, well, I think that would have made it easier to follow him. And I think I might have had more assurance as a Christian if that had been my experience. But actually, this chapter shows us that you don't need Jesus to be physically in the room for you to hear his sovereign call upon your life. Even this chapter shows us that. Philip was directly called by Jesus to follow him. But Andrew and, we think, John had Jesus pointed out to them by John the Baptist and they went after Jesus. Jesus didn't directly call them. And Nathaniel, as we'll see in a few moments, he was reached out to by Philip and brought to Jesus by Philip. 
And actually, that's how most of us came to know the Lord. Someone else, a family member or a neighbor or a colleague or a school teacher or a Sunday school teacher or some kind of gospel worker shared the gospel with us, told us in the language of John 1, come and see, come and see what he's like in his word. And we came and we heard and people had been praying for us and we became followers of Jesus. I just heard a lovely story before the meeting began this morning of a young person who's just come to Christ like that. Thrilling. But every one of us, every one of us, however we came, we were all drawn by the same sovereign call of the same Lord Jesus who decided that day to go to Galilee and found Philip and physically said to him, follow me. And we can see that in the text because Andrew, having become a follower of Jesus, as we saw last Sunday as Jonathan unpacked it, I watched that so that I was prepared for today, and Andrew wanted to bring Simon, his brother, to follow Jesus. And as he brings Simon to Jesus, remember the sovereign call in his life. Verse 42, just glance back at it for a moment. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. Now, he's not saying that because Andrew had made the introductions and said, this is my kid brother. And Jesus quickly, good on his feet, saying, all right, same dad, I'll, I'll mention that, makes it look as if I know him. Of course not. You're Simon, son of John. You'll be called Kephas, which, which translated as Peter, the rock. That happened because the Lord Jesus knew Simon, son of John, brother of Andrew, intimately. He knew all about his past knew all about his future, <coughs> excuse me, knew all about his character, knew all about his attitudes, and knew that one day away in the future, after a right few disasters and denials of Jesus, one day he would be rock-like. And with absolute sovereignty, Jesus not only knows the past, he knows the future. He knows exactly what he's doing with Simon Peter, whom he did not directly call, but whose plan he already had worked out, just like he did for you. And the same sovereignty is at work when Philip bring, brings Nathaniel, as we'll see in a moment. We, we wonder, don't we, well, why, by what right did Philip battle away off and uh, bring Nathaniel? And the answer is in verse 48. That remarkable picture of Jesus saying, I saw you, Nathaniel, before Philip called you. So Philip was, Nathaniel was in Jesus' presence that day because Philip had had a chat with him about Jesus and said, come and see. But Jesus says, before Philip called you, I saw you. And this is the grounds of assurance that we have as the followers of the Lord Jesus. However you frame your story, however you give your testimony, however, and really none of us understands how we came to know the Lord any more than we understand how we were born into the world. It was a, a miracle of God's grace. It's a miracle of his sovereignty. But however you frame it, we come to know, don't we, that he was at work first. 
He knew us from before the creation of the world. He saw us first. He found us before we found him. We might say in our testimony, I have decided to follow Jesus. And that is absolutely true for every one of us. But the initiative was his before it was ours. When we were dead, he made us alive. There's an old, an old, old song. I found a friend, oh, such a friend. He loved me before I knew him. He loved me before I knew him. Drew me with the cords of love and bound me to him. That's why anyone follows Jesus. That's why Philip followed him. Because first of all, he heard the sovereign call that Jesus made. But we discover there's another level of vital confirmation for Philip here. Second we subheading here. Not only did he hear the sovereign call that Jesus made, but he saw, here's the second one coming up on the screen now, the significant connections that Jesus had. Have a look at verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. Now that we in verse 45, that's Philip and Andrew and Peter. So what we're hearing from Philip's mouth here as he speaks to Nathaniel is more of what Philip himself had found in the Lord Jesus who initiated that relationship with Philip when he called him to follow him. So verse 45, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Now let's break off there just for a moment. I take it that Andrew, who we've seen, was schooled by John the Baptist, had understood himself and then passed on first to his brother Peter and then to his fellow citizen of Bethsaida, Philip, the significance, the, the colossal significance of the historic line in which Jesus the Messiah stood as he stood before them that day. We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Can you imagine that moment? Philip was explaining to Nathaniel the ground on which he had become a follower of Jesus, he was saying to him, the reason I follow him is because I see that he's the one to whom our scriptures have been uniquely pointing, away back from Moses. And Moses and the prophets is just another way of saying the law and the prophets, which is the whole Old Testament. And Philip was not only explaining the grounds on which he stood as a follower of Jesus, he was explaining to Nathaniel, here's the grounds on which you can follow him. John the Baptist had done a great job, hadn't he? He'd helped Andrew, who in turn helped Peter and Philip, who was now in turn helping Nathaniel to see that Jesus the Messiah was not a sudden startup company. Now, don't get me wrong, I think startups are amazing. I love Dragon's Den. I love watching it. And every enterprise has to begin as a startup. Of course it does. Nothing wrong with startups. But when you're looking for a company to deal, for example, with your pension provision, you're probably not going to contact Big Roy from Ochnacloy 
who after making all his money in the pipe cleaner industry down through the years has decided at Christmas there to start a pension provision company and he's got on his newly printed business cards established January 2022. Now Big Roy from Auchnacloy, he's a great guy. But are you going to invest your financial future with a guy who has zero history, zero track record, zero experience, zero reputation? No, you're not. That's why the great financial houses have engraved in the stonework above the door of their global headquarters words like established 1847. They're communicating a message, aren't they? They're telling the world that they have expertise, they have reputation, they have success, they have longevity over the centuries in all the ups and downs of uh, the stock market and all the rest of it. They've been able to make returns and keep their customers satisfied. The barber I go to has on his little stall his little sign outside the shop, established 2015. Now, that's not bad. That's not bad. What's that? Seven years and nobody's panned his windows in as far as I can see. And you can't argue with a haircut like that. So that's pretty good for a barber. But the point of verse 45 is to establish the glorious good news that when the Lord Jesus came into the world, he wasn't rocking up as an evangelistic startup, trying to persuade people to follow him, a new kid on the block with new ideas. Invest your eternal souls with me. That's not what was happening. No, his coming had been announced with staggering precision, with amazing consistency. Throughout the whole history of God's dealings and God's communication with his people in the Old Testament scriptures, John the Baptist had been able to show his followers like Andrew and John and who were able to tell others now. And John had dug out the multiple millennia-old communiques that had been received to say this one was coming and how they would recognize him when he came. And because that John the Baptist had done his job so thoroughly, these historic links... These significant connections were utterly compelling. And friends, they became the solid grounds by which Andrew and Simon Peter and Philip came to see Jesus as the one uniquely fulfilling the promises of God. The promises God had made through Moses and the prophets. The one who uniquely could take away the sin of the world could take away their sin if they trusted and followed in him. I'm at a loss to, to to, to convey to you, maybe you see it, but I just think it's so massive. There are solid historical reasons for following the Lord Jesus. Who knows who's listening today? Maybe you're someone who came to Christ as a young person and as I kind of threw out that question at the beginning if someone said to you today well why do you follow Jesus you would be hard pressed other than to say well I was young at the time and and there were lovely people and it seemed like the right thing and I've been happy and I like the church but I don't really know or maybe you're someone who 
can't understand the allegiance of your Christian friends to a man who appeared in the world 2,000 years ago and did and said some remarkable things, but all you have is the eyewitnesses from then, from way back then, and, and you're trying to figure out, how, how am I to follow this Jesus in a secular, sophisticated era like the 20s in which we now live? After all, you might say, well, there must have been thousands of flash-in-the-pan loonies who claimed to be the Messiah down through the years. And got a wee group around them, a few of their friends, to indemnify their claims and to back their story. And they made a splash for a while. How do you Christian people not, how, how do you know Jesus is not just another one like that? And I wonder, can you see that this is what makes the claims and the person of the Lord Jesus so different. Yes, he came from heaven, but he also came through history. Through externally verifiable ancient texts. And so those first century eyewitnesses who became his apostles were not only recording and proclaiming what they saw Jesus do and heard Jesus say. They certainly did that, didn't they? But they did that work of recording what he said and did as those who knew from their history what they were looking for in the consistently promised and outlined Messiah. And they found it uniquely in the Lord Jesus. Did you notice the emphasis on what had been written? We have found, verse 45, the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. John's whole point in this gospel, as we've said already, these things are written. He wrote this gospel that you may believe. So what Moses wrote, what the prophets wrote, fulfilled in Christ, what the eyewitnesses wrote, what those schooled by John wrote is written as evidence that you may have solid grounds for following Jesus, absolute confidence that you're doing the right thing, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why Philip followed Jesus. That's why he wanted others to follow him. And these are the solid grounds for any follower of Jesus. That's the ground on which we may stand today. And any prospective follower of the Lord Jesus... Anybody who's trying to figure out how do we do this, you look at what is written and the Lord Jesus will meet you by his Holy Spirit because he's a living saviour. And this, okay, I know it's just a book, but it's a living word. And you will discover not only historic truth about him, but thrilling truth about his person. We need to hurry on. So point one, why did... Philip followed Jesus for these reasons. He heard that sovereign call that Jesus made. He saw the significant connections that Jesus had. Second thing this morning, well, why did Nathaniel follow Jesus? Now, this is fascinating because with Nathaniel, we encounter the first recorded resistance to, call the, to, to the call to come and see and follow Jesus. We've been looking a lot at verse 45. We're still there and so far so good as Philip gives the ground for his confidence that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's ancient promises written down by the prophets and the apostles. 
over a vast period of time, all of which amazingly find their fulfillment in him. That's, a, that's staggering. But notice with Nathaniel, first of all, his initial skepticism about Jesus. Because as Philip goes on in verse 45 and speaks about the one Moses wrote about, the one the prophets wrote about, he says, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And the bold Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there, Nathaniel asked? Come and see, said Philip. We can all be a bit sniffy, can't we, about the places where other people live that we don't live. I don't know if you saw Lewis Hamilton, the Formula One motorsport world champion, being interviewed, talking about his formative kart racing days in Lark Hall. He didn't pronounce Lark Hall property. He called it Lark Hall. <laughs> but we all know it's Lark Hall or Larky. And a friend of mine wasn't very complimentary. Couldn't believe that Lewis had repeatedly raced at Lark Hall when he could have been in canvas line. And we said, well, look, if we ever meet Lewis, we'll just not mention that. He was so near and yet so far to paradise. Over the years, I've had a few conversations with people uh, that I've discovered lived in Hamilton. And I said to them, oh, we lived in Hamilton. I was brought up in Hamilton. And uh, sometimes they've said to me, oh, where did you live? And I knew what was coming. And I would say, well, um, Spruce Avenue. And they'd say, oh, Silverton Hill. I said, yeah, yeah. Then they, and you know what's coming. Oh, I Spam Valley. <laughs> Do they still call it that? Yeah. Good. Can anything good come out of Spam Valley? That's a kind of sniffy, that's a kind of sniffy thing that's going on here. How can the promised Messiah of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, how can the promised Messiah whose, whose coming was immaculately prepared for for centuries, and spoken about in stunning detail for centuries. And fulfilled in every part of his life. Fulfilled in stunning detail. His arrival perfectly timed. How can he be from Nazareth? Come and see, said Philip. Verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Oh, there are so many levels to that comment. References back to Jacob, the father of Israel, whose name was, whose name became Israel, but Jacob was the twister. Remember, the deceitful man? Have a look at it if you can. We simply don't have time to unpack it now. But fundamentally, what Jesus knew is that Nathaniel, although dismissive of Nazareth, actually was a guy who just always said what he really thought. Nathaniel was a straight shooter in a world of spin. And it was not always comfortable, perhaps, to be around Nathaniel, but you always knew where you were with him. And that's what Jesus means when Nathaniel barrels up to him and Jesus says, Oh, an Israelite in him, there is no deceit. No deceit, no hypocrisy, no creating impressions. No saying one thing to please this group and another thing which is the very opposite to please this group. Nathaniel just said what he thought. And it probably was bruising, but a lot less damaging in the long term than the games we play. 
And Nathaniel is nailed by the way that Jesus just gets him to a T. Oh, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel knows that Jesus knows him to the very core of his being, just like he knew Peter's past, present, and future. And so his initial skepticism moves on to the second and the final subheading. He moves from initial skepticism about Jesus to immature enthusiasm about Jesus. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And wherever Nathanael had been, whatever he'd been doing, Jesus had just nailed him again. Just like the changing of Simon's name to Peter was deeply and definitively meaningful to Peter, so a chord is struck with Nathaniel as Jesus speaks these words. Nathaniel doesn't say, oh, I've been under a lot of trees. What tree are you talking about? Oh, okay, anybody could have told you that. No, he knows there is something, there's a transaction between Jesus and Nathaniel in this moment. And Nathaniel is utterly stunned. He's unzipped in Jesus' presence. He's opened in his presence. And all doubts about Jesus seem to disappear. So verse 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And you'll not be surprised to hear me say that the tonnage of significance in this trio of titles here is incalculable, but we can only just note them in the way past this morning. Nathaniel is stunned by the depths of the accuracy of the knowledge that Jesus has of him. And this isn't a one-off special deal for Nathaniel. Jesus knows everybody like that. When you get to the end of chapter 2, You'll read in verse 23 that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. And you might want to get the flags out in verse 23, but don't because verse 24 said, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He knew all people. Verse 25, he did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a unique gift that Jesus had just to know about Nathaniel. He knows that about everybody, everybody's character. <coughs> so this morning, as I look at you and as you look at me, Jesus saw you under the tree. He saw you under the influence. He saw you under the power of addiction. He saw you under the duvet. He saw you under the depressive cloud. He saw you under the accusation. He saw you under that crushing disappointment. He saw you under the unbearable strain. He saw you under the wrong impression. You see, when we, when we come to him individually to pray and to read and to meet with the Lord Jesus in his word, or when we gather like this in the assembly of his people, we come to see the one who saw us, and the one who sees everything about us. He doesn't need to be told anything about us. He knows the things that you like about yourself. 
He knows the things that you would long to change about yourself. He knows the lovely things that have happened in your life. He knows the rotten things that have happened in your life. He knows the people and the events that have shaped us and made us who we are. He knows all of that. And the invitation is, come and see the one who sees you and knows you and the depth of your past and the depth of your present and the depth of your future. He sees all of these things about you and about me. And the more you see of him, here's how it works. The more you see of him as you get into his word and meet him there, the more you'll see him working on you. It's no small thing to have a saviour like that. Nathaniel was thrilled by the knowledge Jesus had of him. And it would have made a wonderful end to chapter 1 if Jesus had left it there with Nathaniel speaking the way he did and saying, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. What a brilliant way to finish the chapter that would have been. But because he sees us, he doesn't leave it there. Jesus knew that Nathaniel's enthusiasm was immature. So many people say, if only I had a proof, an experience like Nathaniel had, I'd follow Jesus then. I mean, if he pitched up to me and told me something that only he could have known, that nobody else knows, I would follow him then. No, you wouldn't. So many people talk like that and say that would be the grounds of their following Jesus. Jesus knows that that kind of proof won't be enough to hold Nathaniel through the ups and downs of life. If Nathaniel thought that Nazareth was an ill-fitting place for the Son of God and the King of Israel to come from, how will he cope when he sees that the cross and the grave is the location that the King of Israel and the Son of God is determined to go to? How will he cope then? So verse 50, Jesus said to him, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. but you'll see greater things like these. And I like the way Robbie read it. He read it as a question, and it's exactly that. Oh, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? Jesus isn't like a politician looking for popular support. He'll just take anybody, any old way, he'll come and follow him. He's not like those who, who, who just let people tail in behind them without having any real foundational understanding about what they're doing. Because Jesus knows that it might cost them their life to follow him. So he wants them to be really clear on why they're following him. And that's what this whole section is about. So we're 50 verses into this gospel. And we find Jesus talking to a man who has come to believe in him. In verse 49. But Jesus indicates there are actually better reasons to follow me than that. Just exactly what he did with Thomas, 28 verses before the end of the book. Do you remember how after the resurrection, Thomas wouldn't believe? He said, unless I get to put my hands, my fingers in the crucifixion wounds and know that it's the same body and he's living and breathing and back from the dead. And he got to do that. And then in chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Meaning, 
good, but it's no big deal, Thomas. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There are better, there are more solid grounds for following Jesus, and that's what Jesus wanted his followers to have. Can you deal with a Savior who, when people begin to follow him, he makes it slightly difficult for them? Why does he do that? Because he wants them to be on solid ground. He doesn't want quick decisions. He doesn't want people strong-armed into the kingdom. He doesn't want them ticking a box and signing a card and standing at the end of a meeting and not having a clue what they're doing. Jesus does not own that. So what's the alternative for Nathaniel? Well, verse 51, and here we close. He then added, very truly I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus actually quotes the words of Moses from Genesis 28. Do you remember Jacob had gone to sleep and had found a comfortable rock, uh, one of these pillows? Uh, well, I guess it wasn't a memory foam pillow. I remember Margaret brought a memory foam, foam pillow for us one thing. I thought it was made by Blue Circle. It was so hard. But it, I guess it was softer than this one that poor... Jacob had as he lay the rock under his head and went to sleep and he had a dream in Genesis 28 and he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching into heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 28. And later he said, this is the, this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And that's precisely what the Lord Jesus is referencing here. Jacob became... Israel changed his name and he was the father of the 12 tribes, tribes, the father of that vast people. I've already mentioned his name originally meant deceiver. Remember how he persuaded his brother Esau to sell him the birthright? He tricked his brother out of his father's blessings as the firstborn. But God promised to bless a man like that, which is very reassuring for the rest of us sinners. And one Hebrew scholar pointed out that the end of verse 47 of John 1 could literally be Jesus saying to Nathanael, here is an Israel in whom there is no Jacob. Because Jacob just meant deceiver. Here is an Israel in whom there is no Jacob. Because though God confirmed to Jacob the covenant promises he'd made to Abraham, that the nations of the world couldn't, uh, would be blessed through him, they couldn't find ultimate blessing in Jacob. The nations of the world couldn't find ultimate blessing even in Israel, but rather the nations of the world find ultimate blessing in the one who came from Israel. And so in the final verse of John 1, Jesus tells Nathaniel that as he follows Jesus, he will come to learn more than the fact that Jesus knows us all intimately, wonderful though that, though that is, whether we are deceivers or straight talkers. He knows our character, our past, our present, our future. He knows all of that, which is an amazing thing to hear, and we've touched on it. But he says there's better reasons than that for following him. Nathaniel and all the followers of Jesus will come to see him as the stairway on earth to heaven. The scene from Genesis 28 
that Jesus picks up and fills out. If I can say it reverently, it's like two escalators, the up escalator and the down escalator. But it's not in the John Lewis now. It's from earth to heaven, and it's going right into the throne room where God administrates his sovereign rule over the universe. And there are, there's this constant traffic of his messengers ascending back to report to God in the mission that they've completed. And as they ascend, others are descending, fresh with a new commission, a new mission, a new thing to do as God brings his kingdom and rules the nations. And the stunning thing is that the escalators or the staircase, or the ladder, is Jesus. He's the one. He is, he is the one who is the open door into heaven. He is the one through whom God administrates all his plans and purposes, fulfills all his promises, sends down all his blessings, receives up all the prayer requests. It's a word picture. You're not going to find a miracle in John's gospel where one day the disciples actually saw Jesus become a ladder and angels ascending and descending. You're not going to find that in John's gospel or anywhere in the Bible. It's a word picture. Nobody physically saw such a thing. But what they did see and what you will see as you continue your series next week and go into the amazing chapter two, what you will see is Jesus the connection between heaven and earth, the connection between heaven and earth. You'll see Jesus as the access point to heaven from earth. You'll see Jesus as the means by which God the Father brings his kingdom on the earth. And for all the followers of Jesus, back then in the first century and now today in 2022, that is what we have to see if we're going to keep following him. That when we're in his presence, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are right at the gate of heaven. You don't need to be in a building. We don't need to call this God's house. It's no more God's house than anywhere else an individual believer is when they're in Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's God's house. There's no holy places in this world. There's no holy sites for the Christian in this world. Jesus is the holy site. And he lives in us. And we have that communion with him. And this is what builds true and lasting faith and joy. To see him as the very gate of heaven every moment of every day of our lives. And then finally, to experience him as the only way by which we can enter his father's presence forever. And he will do that for us. Friends, that's why this series in John's Gospel is the most important aspect of your life at the moment. I know life is complicated and you've got a million things going on in your life. But the most significant thing in your life at the moment is meeting Jesus in John's Gospel as a church family. Because these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And we ask you, gracious Father, that you would help us to grasp 
the wonder and the significance of what you show us in your word this morning. Inadequately presented on a human level, but we pray for the help of your spirit to drive these things home into our hearts, to open wide the eyes of our hearts, to see these glorious realities about our Saviour, that our trust in him and our confidence in him may grow. For his glory we pray. Amen. Again, our confidence is in Jesus. As we come towards our communion, we're going to sing a couple more songs that lead us in that thought.
Just as we come to break bread, let's just think together about how marvelous our Savior's love is for us. That it was in the night he was betrayed that he took bread. That it was on the night when Peter, who wasn't yet the rock, would deny him three times before the rooster crowed twice that he took bread and broke it and made provision for them because he wanted his people down through the years of history right up to this day and every day until our Savior comes again to know the grounds of our forgiveness. That's how great his love for us is. He's infinitely greater than Jacob. In the Lord Jesus, we see, as he said of Nathaniel, we see in the Lord Jesus, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, but he's greater than Nathaniel. You could be without deceit. You could just be a person who absolutely tells it like you think it is and yet get lots of things wrong, sincerely wrong. Still do a lot of damage. Be a straight shooter, but still do a lot of damage, hurt a lot of people. Jesus is infinitely greater than that. John 1.14 He's the one who came full of glory from the Father and full of grace and truth. It's not just that he doesn't tell lies. It's not just that he tells it like it is as he sees it. He's full of truth. What he says is stunningly, life-changingly true. And he's full of grace. That means he treats us in the opposite to the way in which we deserve to be treated. So why not take a moment in the quietness of your heart for a few seconds and marvel on how wonderful his love for you is. Maybe reconnect with him afresh this morning and then I'll lead us as we give thanks for the bread and for the cup. Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And gracious Father, as we gather here this morning, we've met together to sing your praises and to hear your word, to encourage one another, to be built up in our walk with you, to see again the grounds we have for following this remarkable Savior. And now we do his bidding, we follow him in the way that he said we ought to. In a few seconds, we're going to take the bread, and we're going to take the cup. And in our hearts, we're going to say, Lord Jesus, I proclaim my confidence in your death for me, the blood applied that cleanses me in a second, puts me right with you, gives me your record, gives me your splendid perfection instead of my shambles, which you took and bore on your body on the tree. So we, your people, your blood-bought people, praise you and thank you from the depths of our hearts 
for the body that you took, for the body that was broken, for the blood that was shed, for the grace that meets us here. In your precious name, amen. Let's take of the bread and of the cup. Lord Jesus, we marvel at the depth of your knowledge of us, not only for the fact of that, but for the fact that it does not make you run a million miles from us, but that you draw near as you continually do by your powerful Holy Spirit through your word. And you speak to tell us of your love for us, that took you to the cross and you speak to tell us of your power for us that brought you from the grave and you speak to tell us that every moment of our lives from before we were even knit together in our mother's womb until that day when finally you will take us home to glory and then forevermore is known to you. May that freshly cause us to want with all our hearts to be close to the one who knows, to see more of the one who sees everything. To trust and follow the one who knows everything there is to know. May it have that impact in our lives, we pray this week. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>